I've always had a problem with the way that the wine industry talks incessantly about land and place and terroir. And there is a total and complete analysis and framework around how this system informs how we should value quality of the grapes based on its place of origin. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Today on the show, I welcome Stephen Satterfeld to the studio. Stephen has many layers in his long career in journalism, wine, and television, and we discuss them all. He is the founder of Whetstone, an extremely cool media company founded in 2017 that produces journals, podcasts, and an anchor magazine is one of our favorites on the rack. He's also the host of the Netflix series High on the Hog, How African American Cuisine Transformed America, winner of a Peabody Award for Documentary. This conversation is wide-ranging and dips into Stephen's sommelier past as well as digs into his approach for producing one of my favorite magazines, Whetstone. It's a really great conversation. Stephen Satterfield, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thanks for having me, Matt. I appreciate it. Well, I'm really happy that we're talking today because you won the Peabody for High on the Hog. You were honored with, I would say, the highest recognition in journalism outside the Pulitzer, maybe even on the same level. I mean, congratulations about this. Wow. What news? (laughs) What news is right. Um, Thank you. I think I'm still processing. How did you find out? I think I received uh, an email. Or no, actually, this for this news, that was um, something different. I actually, I found out where I find out all pertinent information, which is on Twitter.com. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, no way. <laughs> I did. I did. Um, I knew that we were going to find out soon. Um, but yeah, I was, uh, I was tagged in a tweet from our director. Um, and then I went back to my inbox and I saw that there was a message there that said we'd, we'd won. Well, I will uh, set up High on the Hog in, in my intro, but I, I, I do want to say it's one of the most important food programs around and I, I can't stress that enough. And I hope everyone has gotten a chance to check it out on Netflix. My question is, is you know, how do you continue from season one to a f- to a future season? Uh, where do you pick up the story? Yeah, so this the f- documentary is based on the text from the book High on the Hog by Dr. Jessica B. Harris. And where season one leaves off is uh, a story of freedom, emancipation, at the we culminate the first season with with Juneteenth. And so for this next season, we will be moving from Texas to points north, south, and west, um, east and west, uh, to explore migration and um, kind of move chronologically through the book, which is to say, Uh, the chronological story of Black Americans as told through food. 
was there a voice that that you circled when you wrapped season one that you're like, this is a voice that needs to be in the foreground of season two? Is there, I don't want to spoil the show, and when you put out the episode or the season, we'll 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 talk about that more then. But yeah, that's a that's such a great question um, because the it's so voicey. Um, you know, uh, there's a lot of voice narration that kind of helps carry the storytelling. Um, but my approach with High on the Hog, you know, to be candid, I was um, much like I feel right now, astonished and stunned at the opportunity to get to host not just a Netflix show, but a show um, with such profound content uh, whose source material is my real source material as a kind of intellectual and a curious person in in the food space, you know, wanting to connect my own ancestral history to my curiosity and the work I was doing. A lot of that for me came from Dr. J um, and even this book to some degree. So, you know, I think that because of the magnitude of the opportunity and just my own personal um vigor and curiosity with the subject matter itself, my awe and reverence for Dr. J. Um, I really focused on not messing up. Um, and that's really, I know it sounds like I'm being funny, but that was really like my energy um, with the work is to hold it carefully, to hold it closely. Um, and for me, that just required a lot of getting out of my own mind about all kinds of things, including the sound of my own voice, um, which, you know, you do a podcast. I think everyone who's ever had to record their voice for their craft has had the feeling of hating to hear it. And so, yeah, the hardest thing and the most important thing for me was to stay out of my own head and to really ground myself in the work and the opportunity. That's a real uh, strength of the show is is your vulnerability in, in parts of it and, and stepping away from the microphone and having voices come to the forefront and have Dr. Harris's voice and, and scholarship come to the forefront. I think Food TV was really host-driven where it was a real type A person you know, in front of the camera, outside of maybe chef's table, which which was certainly in like a third person kind of point of view. But I, I still, I think as a hosted show, you really were able to thread that, thread that needle and offer both vulnerability and quiet, but then getting in front of the mic, the camera and mic when needed. So I think that's a real strength of the show. I really genuinely appreciate that. Um, I grew up watching and really being influenced by a lot of the type A host personalities. Um, <laughs> and it was an area of, I think, some concern um, among people on the show and um, even some of the earliest media that came out was just about my disposition, my temperament being very much not in that um, mode or mold. Um, but that said, um, you know, people are very good at detecting what's real. 
um, better than ever, I think. And so um, I was never going to be able to pull off a gregarious, um, deeply personality-driven show because that's not who I am. Um, and for this material, uh, much better to just keep it real um, because yeah. there's a lot that the camera reveals, I think, when, when folks aren't doing that. Well, I wanted to transition the conversation to your to your work with wine because I think it's a topic we, we actually don't talk to too many sommeliers or, or wine professionals on the Taste Podcast, and I, I wanted to get your take on, on a few wine topics because, you know, you've been um, training uh, for a while, and you, you actually um, started working as a sommelier at age 21. Um, so my, I guess my first question is about wine. Do you feel wine is more or less accessible than we kind of place it in the food culture as maybe writers or or, or thinkers in food? Um, yeah, I think that accessibility in that context um, is multifaceted. You know, when I was growing up in the wine business, it felt less accessible to me as a young black man than it would for, um, for a 21-year-old person of color beginning in the industry today, for instance. Um, you know, that being said, even though there are various um, groups of support and research that kind of run um, either parallel or completely independent of, uh, you know, the sort of gatekeeping organizations of the wine world, the uh, Court of Masters, Sommeliers, the Masters of Wine, all these types of organizations. Um, you know, there is a sort of, I guess, countercultural style movement away from those accreditations. There's been a lot of reporting on how some of those institutions um, really had, you know, no business gatekeeping anything. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, no business to begin with. Totally. Yeah, interesting point. There. Yeah, so, um, yeah. so yeah, I think in that sense, but in terms of the vocabulary of the world of wine, um, has anything changed in the writing or the culture that makes people less confused or makes it more accessible? Not really, I think, um, and I'm not really sure, you know, what to attribute that to. I don't really think there's anything kind of malicious or sinister underlying. I think, you know, that mythology is kind of a uh, a shared mythology, both from the professional vantage, um, but also the consumer. You know, there's a little like awe and wonderment and, um, you know, in not knowing. It's almost like easy to be self-deprecating like i don't know anything about wine yeah it's that's an easy that's an easy place to go as a as a a wine consumer to be like i don't know anything about wine i'm just going with the pick at the bottle shop or at the restaurant um i'm seeing i want to get your take on on the way wine is being served um at you know at bars and and at clubs you know I, I, it seems that there is a slight movement as we kind of exit the pandemic at least this phase of it for like serving like natural wines, pet nats, all that kind of, you know, those popular styles of wine, you know, in like non-traditional spaces, meaning with a DJ 
playing in a backyard where there's actually great wine service or, you know, even at a fast casual restaurant where you actually have the number, um, you know, you order the food at the register and you place the number down, you're actually getting a great bit of wine there. I mean, do you agree with this? Are you seeing this or is that maybe a little bit of me being optimistic? No, I I think that's true. Definitely. If we're talking accessibility just through pure distribution, like where wine shows up in culture, it is just in different places, in different contexts. Um, That also has to do with the vessels that, I mean, you know, you can get Lambrusco in a can, you know, you have um, natural wines on tap. Uh, Again, just a lot more technology, a lot more um, interest um, in the category, broadly speaking, not necessarily more knowledge, um, but more consumption. Which, you know, I, again, I feel kind of agnostic about, um, but I, it's just an interesting thing. As far as natural wine, um, you know, there, I do think natural wine has had an interesting um, effect on consumers in that it did feel like an area of the wine world where the rules could be rewritten or were written in pencil and not carved in stone. Um, And so the barrier to being part of the natural wine club or moment um, is much, much lesser than learning, you know, the crews of Beaujolais or learning all the first growths. you know, so you could just say, this is, I like natural wine. Interesting. So I, I like that point. I want to ask you a little further. Uh, so like we talk about wine by regions, I mean, particularly in, in, in Europe, um, where that's a name or not, that's a generalization, but I think about, I go to France where geography is a big part of the naming convention, but you're saying that natural wine as a category should be embraced as its own category and it is a little bit liberating to say, okay, well, this is a natural producer. I like this wine. I guess the question is, is how do you define a natural wine then in terms from like the most, like from the, for the end user? Natural wine um, is different in that it is not talked about in a regional context. Um, broadly speaking, it's talked about as a, a style or um, a category. Um, the definition is not totally rigid, but broadly speaking, um, it's about a, a way, a agricultural way of life um, that is does not include any inputs in the wine. Um, or any other modifications in the wine. And and for people who don't know, sometimes if you buy a bottle, um, there's, uh, I mean, I don't know how many, probably a couple hundred legally um, permissible, um, you know, additions that can be added into wine. Um, Everything from like egg whites for fining uh, agents to acid if you wanted to literally make a wine taste more bright or tart. Um, and so, you know, I, I do love the idea of um, this sort of non-interventionist winemaking 
where it's really the the grapes doing the the talking, so to speak. Um, but the problem, especially for uh, some of these pet nets in particular, um, it's a, it reminds me a bit of the craft beer boom of like maybe 10 years ago or more where everyone was making extremely heady, hoppy, IP, aggressive, aggressive flavored beers, totally IPAs and, um, and also just a lot of money in the category as well. You know, craft brewing really was exploding at that time. There were some big, um, acquisitions, um, around that time as well. And so I think, you know, it's a moment where when something gets really popular, really fast, there's going to be a lot of people who are there to capitalize with tremendous marketing, packaging, bottling, et cetera. Um, but the the quality or the rigor around the actual product itself is really wildly variable. Um, and so the only place that I really like to drink natural wine is a place where um, the buyer has a relationship to wine that extends beyond, let's say, the last five years um, so that their their buying can be informed by a larger yeah. context. I'm hearing, you know, real research, real legacy, real heritage there and, and the buyer knowing this when they're talking to the producer, not necessarily leaning into like the hashtag natty wine movement and, and slick packaging. And I think that's a smart 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 you know method for anyone searching out even food and food and drink because i think you really want to know where your the source is and not just you know go by, go by the newest uh the newest craze i want to ask you about black terroir which is a book you're working on and i i'd like to just know you know what 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 is the focus of your research and your writing for this book, which I'm I'm really looking forward to reading. I, I can't wait to, to to see it. Well, first of all, it's very personal um, in in nature, in that um, it's sort of a thesis that I developed over the last decade, um, from moving from being a, a sommelier as a young man into um, a journey that took me to South Africa. Um, working in the wine industry there, um, really seeing up close the scars and stains of apartheid um, uh, in plain view on these beautiful vineyards in the Western Cape of South Africa. Um, and I've always had a problem with the way that the wine industry talks incessantly about land and place and terroir. And there is a total and complete analysis and framework around how this system informs what quality is, how we should value the uh, quality of the grapes based on its place of origin. And yet that same analysis always seems to miss that the origins of the acquisition of the land or violent or underhanded. And I have always felt that lack of analysis really undermines 
the ways that we otherwise talk about terroir. And so um, in a sense, I am using that word to talk about place, um, the place that I'm from, Atlanta, Georgia, and um, the places that the people who made me are from, from Mississippi, from Tennessee, from Gary, Indiana. And um, yeah, it's a book about wine and family and I guess to some degree uh, a philosophy for black liberation. That's incredible. I, I really can't wait to li- to read it. And, and, you know, we think about terroir in so many different ways. And I think you're actually creating a new way of viewing terroir, not just for your own experience in the black history, but uh, of wine. But, you but you know, generally all regions, I'm sure, could use this rethinking of what terroir is and not, not literally just agriculture, but the actual people making the wine and you know, harvesting the grapes. Yeah, I think that's that's powerful. I, I'd, I'd like to uh, get into Whetstone because, you know, th- that's how I got to know you as a, as a writer and a thinker through Whetstone, which was a, launched as a quarterly in 2016 and has really, you know, over time grown into a, a, a real, you know, full-fledged, full-steam media company. My observation with Whetstone is that, you know, one of the, your spe- the special sauce to your success, and there's been great success, has been, you know, you're not, you're kind of an outsider in a way. Um, you may disagree, but, you know, you're not New York City based per se. And, and your point of view is not grounded in that New York City food media kind of anchor that so much food media is, is anchored in with LA maybe leaking in there a little bit too. But I'd like to get into, you know, a little bit of what your vision is for Whetstone editorially. Uh, and then we can talk about podcasts too, because I know you've really invested heavily in podcasting. Yeah, we did. Um, so, yeah, Whetstone is my company. Um, started off as a print magazine. Uh, conceptually, in 2016, we actually got into market 2017, and at that time, you know, just over five years ago, um, the goal was really just. Can we actually pull this off? Um, I don't have to tell you the the print magazine business, um, especially 2016, 2017, there was a very well accepted narrative that print was dead. um, And especially as I tried to sort of generate support around the idea for this print based magazine brand, um, people just weren't feeling it or they weren't getting it or they weren't convinced um, that we could do it. And so uh, the first few editions were really just in service to the very small group of people who believed in us and actually, you know, who's for whose magazines that we had to fulfill the orders for. You know, we, we did a um, crowdfunding campaign for these early editions. And um, I think it must have been in our third edition um, where I really started to feel differently about our work. This is in 2018. Um, The cover was from Gujarat, India. It was shot by one of my very dear friends, Sana Javeri Qadri of Diaspora Co. And um, we had this gorgeous spread of, just, you know, folks eating on the street 
um, like a photo essay from Gujarat. And I just remember thinking, you know, that was the first time that the magazine really hit me um, almost like a consumer, you know, like I had stepped out of the fact that um, I had a hand in helping make it. And I just loved the product. I just loved the magazine. Um, it felt very close to what I had envisioned when I dreamt about making Whetstone. Um, and so I always actually had the vision for a full-fledged media company. We actually, believe it or not, felt the magazine would be the simplest path into establishing the brand. Um, and so I think a lot of how we have executed over the last few years, a lot of our sort of um, wrinkles and new iterations, a lot of that stuff has been inside of my mind for a long time. Um, but it took a few years before I really had the confidence that we would be able to grow from um, a direct-to-consumer print business into um, a larger media company. Yeah, I, I just you're being I, I, you're you're once again you know showing your vulnerability in like the best possible way. You're just you're saying I, you know, became a fan of my own magazine in 2018, which which I relate to doing media myself for a long time. Sometimes we get so close to it, we think, oh, okay, well this this is going to work. This is going to work, and you know sometimes it doesn't work. I've I've certainly been guilty of that of producing stories that didn't work, but when you see your work in a different context and you 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 know the magazine appears to you in like a random space and you open it up and you look at it or you the link arrives and and you say wow this is actually a good this is actually good i like relate to that i think that that's powerful and i, I appreciate you sharing that because i think it's important to to re recognize how these launching media is so difficult Capturing that voice is difficult. And you were, I cut you off. Sorry about that. I wanted to get to the podcast part too, because I know you've invested heavily. And I wanted to know if podcasting to you is, are you feeling, are you feeling the love in terms of sponsors coming to podcasts? I know there's so many podcasts out there. I know listening to this one, I appreciate you listeners tuning into Taste. But are you, are you breaking through the, all that noise? Um, I think it's a little early for us to say, um, you know, if what the final analysis around podcasting is, I love the category. I've been a fan of podcasts for over 10 years. Um, it's a medium that has always spoken to me, no pun intended. Um, it's, it's, you know, a quite intimate medium in terms of, um, you know, real like emotional penetration uh, or even like ideological penetration. You know, the the source is literally embedded in pe between people's ears um, in the case of those who, who wear headphones. Um, and even the passive listening uh, develops a kind of intimacy, a relationship with the audience that's hard for other ways of media to um, approximate. And so because we like to tell very immersive stories, um, we 
will always be in the business of podcasting. Um, you know, we are unusual in that because uh, the podcast is not our core business, um, it's part of a larger ecosystem that we produce and create in. Um, you know, we don't have a lot of the same um, constraints, I guess, uh, as if, you know, this was if we were just purely in the podcast space. It serves a function for us um, that goes beyond just, you know, another platform for us to create. Um, what we're making is a totally original offering. We have our own in-house production team, a sound engineer. We have our own composer. So most shows you listen to, the little stings that you hear um, come from a sound library. All of our sounds are come from our own comp um, composers. Love that. So what are some of the podcasts we can uh, look, look to, uh, part of the Whetstone Radio Network? Well, we have uh, so many. We have Black Material Geographies, which is a show about uh, textiles from the African diaspora and um, our relationship to our garments and the environment. We have a show from Deb Freeman called Setting the Table, which is all about um, Black food culture. So very uh, high on the hog type vibes if people enjoyed that. Um, we have a show from Clarissa Wei, a journalist in Taiwan who we've worked with a bunch, um, called Climate Cuisine, which is about um, the relationship between, you know, our diet and crops in different climate zones around the world um, with an eye towards sustainability um, and renewable, regenerative agriculture. Um, we have a show uh, that is in Anishinaabeg territory um, in Michigan, which is led by Shiloh Maples, um, which is all about uh, indigenous food culture uh, and food sovereignty um, as well. So yeah, we have lots more, um, but the, the idea is no matter what your kind of area of interest is, there should be something on the network for you. I love it. It's such ambitious work, to, and 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 just uh, we'll link to a few of the shows in our notes, and um, you know, not to, <laughs> not to like uh, to discount uh, your time, but like how the how do you find time to also launch Rasa? Right, Rasa is a new publication. It's a new online vertical and a magazine. I mean, you've got to tell me a little bit more about that one. Yeah, we are so excited about this magazine. Um, you know, it was not this was not part of the plan, actually. Um, we at the end of 2020 uh, did kind of a open call for, you know, publishing for digital publishing. So this was the first time we moved from print into, um, you know, a more regular um, accessible uh, digital publishing, uh, or we, instead, in other words, we started a blog on our website, um, and so we we called in writers from around the world, um, and we received a very high concentration of incredible stories 
from South Asia, but in particular, um, you know, from India. And one of the stories that we got um, was from Vidya Balanchander um, about uh, a spice called Asafetida or Hing, which many of your um, listeners may be familiar with, but it was the closest thing that we had to a kind of viral story, if you will. Um, and we could see that this story was being spread and shared and talked about in a way that was um, deeply resonant. And it was deeply, I mean, even for me, you know, we we published the story and I'm, I mean, the writing is phenomenal, but like, I didn't have the cultural context to know like this was really a thing for South Asians that would, you know, make them feel seen. And so often, you know, in, in media, um, when we're talking about dominant culture, right, when we're moving outside of those cultural norms, people read about their food culture in quotation marks or in italics. And this was just a story written by an Indian woman about something that her community and her culture knew a lot about. And, you know, from there, that visibility from that article kind of brought in a new wave of writing uh, from India, from Sri Lanka, from Pakistan. And we wanted to invest in all of this incredible writing. Um, and so we ended up creating um, a digital vertical uh, for South Asia. And because of the NVIDIA who wrote the article ended up becoming our editor for that vertical. Oh, yeah. So you hired her. So like this one article about Hing Asvatita actually brought her into your ecosystem. You edited her. You saw the success of the story and then decided to launch Rasa out of out of out of her kind of scholarship and her real moxie, it seems smart. I mean, lucky, right? Like, you know, we, (laughs) we really were lucky, um, that the article came through, that it resonated in the way that it did. Um, and yeah, it was a very, um, clear signal to me that, um, this was an underserved audience and we wanted to have a platform where we could grow this type of dialogue. And that's really in keeping with, I mean, you mentioned earlier us as kind of an outsider. I certainly feel that way. Um, You know, I didn't go to college. I didn't, um, I I didn't ever work in a newsroom or, you know, part of any um, professional media organizations or anything at all like that. You know, it, part of why we had such a hard time in the beginning is that um, no no one knew who we were. And so um, we have always built on the margins. We've always really truly been on the margins of the industry. Um, but because of my own background, you know, uh, almost 20 years of studying, eating and drinking, um, the leverage or the advantage that we've had is our our media has always been deeply informed 
Um, whereas, you know, some other colleagues um, got into the food space or, you know, through media, we really got into the space through food itself. Great distinction. Such a distinction, Stephen. Such a distinction. I think it's not said enough that there are certain food media professionals who are more media than food. Not judging it, to be honest. This isn't a judgment. It's just an observation. But I think you can some and, – and, you know, great publications are created through media people, not food people. But when you are created by a group of food people with professionals from the industry or people who worked on farms or people who worked in the industry in some capacity, it, there's a different product. I mean it's a, it has a different – it reads a little differently. And I think Whetstone and all the podcasts you spoke of is – is something that everyone needs to, to, to our listeners need to check out, and I'll link to ways to subscribe. I wanted to ask you about home cooking because we always do ask our guests about dishes or recipes. What is your what is your style of cooking at home? Do you have um, a favorite cuisine that you're diving into right now, currently? Yeah, it's called um, leftover takeout. Um, it's an emergent. <laughs> I'm glad you can admit It's an that. emergent cuisine. You maybe haven't heard of it. <laughs> Yeah, you know, the pandemic has really rocked my world um, in terms of my diet and, and how I eat. We started to eat, you know, more takeout. I mean, I used to never do it. And um, at first it was about, you know, a means of offering support. Um, but then, and, you know, certainly all implied privilege is received, but I just got to a point where working all day long, the energy and expense of going out and, and eating or cooking at home more specifically um, just seemed daunting. But an interesting thing that has transpired is that, um, you know, I almost always will get a second or third meal out of whatever I've ordered and now I find myself cooking more, but I'm, I'm using the food that I've ordered from restaurants, more like the things that would have been prepped out. And I'm, improvis- and I'm, and I'm uh, improvising, you know, based on like an extra side of rice or some sides that I like rework in some fashion. Um, so, in an odd way, I have actually been cooking still, but um, instead of me kind of prepping my proteins and sides and things like that, I tend to um, just pick up where the chef has left off. I love that. I, I think there's a real art to, to cooking with leftovers. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I think of it as like Guitar Hero, that old game from like 20 years ago where, you know, you're playing along with the song and you're kind of like faking the finger movement. And you've got this dish that has been created. And, like, you talk about rice. Like, you know, throwing away rice from a restaurant is just one of the worst things no, you can do. It is, rice is such a beautiful thing. When it's cooked properly at a restaurant, you got to take that home. Cook with it. Have you? What's a dish that you've improvised from leftovers? Well, one dish that I'm famous for uh, reviving is actually French fries. Fries, is, fries are my favorite food. Um, I'm a habitual french fry eater um and 
well, I know that people have air fryers now, but um, one method that I uh, discovered a few years ago was reheating French fries on a cast iron skillet over medium heat, no oil, and vigorously shaking the fries intermittently on and off heat until they go from thick and still wet and dense from all the refrigeration moisture into something that is dry and crunchy and begins to look and sound like the original iteration of the fries. So I felt like that was always one of my greatest contributions to the world of culinary arts. So I try to um, tell all of my friends and loved ones about how to properly reheat French fries so that they don't throw them out. So that's one thing that I've... Quickly, let's go through the fast food taxonomy. Let's go, like, we've got McDonald's, which is, like, really salty. We've got chicken fries at BK. We've got Wendy's thicker cut fries, and we've got, obviously, curly fries at Arby's. Are you a fan of any of these fast food fries? I am not a fan of fast food products. That being said, um, if of those styles and grades of fries... We were to pick one, I might go for the shape and texture of a Mickey D's fry with the spice package of an Arby's fry. Oh, well said. Yes, the spice of Arby's you cannot be beaten. It, it's kind of like an Old Bay, I must say. That's my like. That's my thought. Of yeah, that. I think it's Old Bay heavy. Again, really hard for me. Um, to remember, but I, I think that's probably on target. I have to ask you this. This has always been on my mind, but do you ever get confused with the other Steven Satterfield from the American South? I feel like there's got to be crossover with the others. I just had to ask you that. I know it's kind of a basic question. But it's actually, it's not a basic question and I relish any opportunity to set the record <laughs> straight. There's probably people who have listened to, for 45 minutes and are just now realizing that they're not listening to the person that they thought they were listening to. So <laughs> if you're listening and you think that this is a chef from Atlanta who owns a restaurant called Miller Union, um, who is a James Beard <laughs> award-winning cookbook author, I'm sorry to disappoint you. You've got the wrong guy. My name is also Steven Satterfield, but... The Steven Satterfield you're looking for is my good buddy who is a chef. And this continues to be a source of confusion, not even just for um, the general public, but also for people in our industry. Um, the There are many key differences between me and my brother, Steven. Um, many of them are obvious. One obvious one I will note is that uh, he spells his name with a V. I spell mine with a PH. And so um, if you are looking for me and you're spelling with a V, that is only going to create more confusion. So um, thank you for the opportunity to set the record straight on that. For the last 15 years, we've been invited to the wrong dinners, um, got the wrong <laughs> messages. Oh, you're due um, at this restaurant in 15 minutes from now. Then I have to hit the owner. Sorry, bro. You're looking for Steven. We have the same 404 area code. We have many of the same friends here in Atlanta. 
Um, it really has been <laughs> a doozy of a decade plus of people confusing the two of us. But I love him. He's got probably my favorite, certainly the most frequented restaurant for me in Atlanta. That's so cool to hear. I didn't know that. That's I love Miller Union. It's a great I restaurant. I love it there. So I'm happy to be confused with him. <laughs> oh, that's sweet. I, I, I had no idea that you were even friends. So it's it's cool to hear that. And I, I bet this is like a David Sedaris story in the in the making. I we ask all guests in the Taste Podcast, uh, if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of budget, meaning you have unlimited funds and and unlimited time, what would that book be? I have a couple things that I would love to do. Um my favorite kind of stories are the ones that connect across culture. So, um, you know, a couple times I've seen like uh, the New York Times do a series about what p- people from certain uh, regions eat for breakfast. I think actually some um, Fiden published a book like this too. Um, I would love to go back around the world in a similar fashion um, and revisit the crops of these regions that are no longer parts of the staple diet and see if we could revive them or identify them as part of the research for this book and create a whole new lexicon of recipes and ingredients based on the world's respective and collective native diets. I really hope that that comes to fruition. I feel like it could also be something of the television variety too. Exactly. Given the world travel element and redefining crops. Steven Satterfeld with a P, (laughs) thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thanks for having me, Matt. I appreciate it. The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumber. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening. <laughs>